The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5 through 7. It is an invitation to true, glorious living. It's a new way of seeing, a new way of living. The Lord, of course, starts out the sermon with what is famously referred to as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, the sin of the world. Blessed are the meek, or the approachable, the teachable, the broken. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart is a singular focus and vision. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about the results of the manifestation of this. And he says this, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. And then he launches into the correct understanding of some of the law of God. He says, you've heard it said, you've read, you've been taught this, but I say to you, this is the deeper understanding of this law. He does it six times. And then in chapter 6, he talks about our relationship with the Lord and how we practice outwardly and inwardly who God is in our lives by the way that we give, by the way that we pray, and by the way that we fast. And then he comes to the section that I'm going to use this morning as a principial statement for the stewardship of life. And, and that is, he, he talks about application. And he says this, and this is so unambiguously clear. Listen, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust break in and where thieves steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust corrupt, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then the two verses I'm going to talk about today. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is sound, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how vast is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and cling to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or a materialistic worldview, or things. To me, this, this passage is an invitation to really live. To, to really walk in dignity and life and purpose. And the key, the linchpin is the eye is the lamp of the body. Whatever you desire and you look upon and you hunger for in your soul, that's the light. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is, is full of light, your whole body will be flooded with, with, with light and reality and joy. But if, if the light within you is darkness, if you look upon things that are transitory and self-centered and uncaring and uneternal, then your body will be filled with darkness. And if the light within you is really darkness, he says, how vast is the darkness? So this is an invitation to life. For example, Psalm 31 verse 19 says this, Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. 
How abundant is your goodness, which you stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I want to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Proverbs chapter 4 says this, verse 18. But the light, or the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what they stumble over. The light of the righteous is like the coming light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full dawn of day. See, this is an invitation to see clearly instead of seeing through a confused, distorted lens. C.S. Lewis, I just love him. He's one of the top things I've ever read by Lewis, and I've read many wonderful things by Lewis who died in 1963. He said this. He says, I, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has also risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Not only because by, I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is sound, your body is flooded with light. Church, how, how are you seeing? How are you seeing? Are you seeing clearly? Are you seeing progressively? I read this well-known passage, Luke chapter 9, and I ask myself, you know, how did Christ say these words? Listen to these words. Well-known, well-known words. He says, If any man will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So daily. It's an ongoing, unfolding work. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Why does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself and he says he says if you want to save your life through self machination and self pursuits you're going to lose it but if you lose your life in me you find it and then he asks us that's this rhetorical question what, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul so this this is an invitation to life and joy and peace. And so I'm going to start a series today on stewardship. Today, some basic principles. Next week, more particular application out of 1 Timothy. But, but a, a steward is someone appointed to give oversight to a entrusted provision who in turn will give an account of the way he's handled his charge. It's a steward. A steward is someone who's been given gifts or a responsibility who will give an answer for the way he has carried out his, his duties. And you see, we believe in the stewardship of life if you're a follower of Christ. You, you are saved by faith alone, but there's a time in glory where you'll give an account for the way you've lived your life. And so we believe in stewardship of time, talents, and our, our resources. 
Now, this little study has been titled uh, Fast Forward, so spoiler alert, okay, spoiler alert. If you fast forward, we're going to die, and we're going to give an account. So that's, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, that's just the way it's going to end, all right? Fast forward and you die. Um, that's why Martin Luther, who died in 1547, said, when I see the gospel, I live every day in light, uh, I live today in light of that day. There's two days I live for, today and that day, the day when I meet the Lord, the, the day when I, I give an account. Now, it, it, every system has what we call an organizing principle, which is the key thought or key driving force that gives life to the organization or the movement or what. The, the, the organizing principle of the Christian faith is stated in a little study called the Larger Catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's our worldview. And if you live that way, and you tease that out, your body will be flooded with light. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's based upon a little verse in 1 Corinthians 10 that says, whether you eat, or you drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. As a steward, responsible, with joy, it's an invitation to life. And say, well, really, tease that. Well, and, 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 and the way you do that is you understand that the end result of the Christian faith is to progressively, it's a process, become like Jesus. Um, Romans 8 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. Lewis says very famously in Mere Christianity that the end result or the purpose of the church exists is to produce men and women who are little Christ. They take on the attitude and the mind of the Lord Christ. They are conformed to the image of the Lord. And so we have this paradigm we show you occasionally that says this is kind of an overview of the Christian faith creation man was sinless man fell into sin and we have received a sin nature but there's redemption in Christ but after you come to know Christ you are restored there's a restoration process it is gradual it is unfolding it is day by day but the restoration process is that we would become like Christ there's a wonderful book called being human by a guy named Macaulay and bars two guys and they say we have we know of no other way ultimately to be to become men and women of God than to progressively understand and grapple with the strong reality of Christ as we study the Word of God. I agree. So the organizing principle is to glorify God. We glorify God by becoming like Him. That is, that is the stewardship. And so, so you read the Sermon on the Mount, and it really you just, you're overwhelmed by the glory of Christ in this regard. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, I said, well, wow. Who else but God in the flesh would discount the Mosaic law to a degree and say, this is the real interpretation? That's it six times. And then you start reading the Gospels. For example, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, there's a man who's paralyzed. He wants to get in front of Jesus, the teacher, also Jesus, the healer. They have no idea he's Messiah in the flesh, but his, there's something, there's a power that flows from him. And so his friends pick him up, four friends. They try to get in the house. They cannot, so they climb up on the house. It's a great story. And they pull back the roof, and they lower him right in front of Jesus as he's teaching. 
That'd be wild, wouldn't it? You were standing there, boom. And, and it says that Jesus looked up, and, he, and when he saw their faith, plural, it's interesting, their faith. So you need to have good friends. When he saw their faith, he said, my son, your sins are forgiven you. And the teachers of the law who knew Scripture and who knew the things of God said, that's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sin but God. Exactly. Exactly. You get it. And then the next chapter, Jesus goes up on the mountain and prays. And he, he calls, he, he prays all night. And he calls his men to himself and he appointed 12 to be apostles. And the Bible says to be with him, to preach his message, and to cast out demons. And he sent them out, preached the message two by two. Be with me, cast out demons. He said, well, who, who has that type of arrogance to say, God? God. And so we're to become men and women who resemble Christ. The eye is the lamp of the body, the stewardship. What are you looking at? What, what are you thinking about? What are you longing for? Is it to be like Christ? Is it to be progressively conformed to him? Is it to have your life flooded with the reality of all that he is and to walk in dignity and joy and peace and with a purpose in life? And that's what I want. I want that for us. And so this passage says your body will be either full of darkness or full of light, which says to me there, there, are, there are degrees here. So just push on. Push to know him. So, but what, what are your heart's inclinations? I'm reading a book called Fault Lines by a guy named Friedman, who's, I, I like him, he's a good writer, deals with prognosticating. But his, his story goes like this. He was born uh, 15 months after the close of World War II in Hungary. So his mom and dad and his older sister lived in the Nazi occupation and takeover of Hungary. His mom was sent out on a work detail with her three sisters. Uh, two of her sisters died. At the end of the war, his mama weighed 80 pounds. She was just barely alive. His dad was in a concentration camp, but he was a man of some means. He had a sister who was hidden, but the last weeks of the war, when the Nazis were furiously killing all the Jews they could, she was lined up with her cousin, and they were getting ready to be put on a, a truck and taken to Auschwitz. And the story goes, true story that a, a, a tall man in a leather coat pulled her aside, and her cousin says, come with me, and he took him to a Red Cross house, and they found out years later his dad had given everything he had to get them to safety. So his grandparents, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins all died, but his sister and his mom and his dad survived. And then two years later, he was born. And then there in Budapest, his dad's a printer, and the Soviets come in and overrun the country. And... His dad realized he couldn't survive, that freedom was dead and gone. And so his dad, one day, without telling him, of course, the children, he, he was just 11 months old, comes home. He locks his door to his print shop. He locks the door to their apartment. And it's in August, and they, put, they take their winter coats and kind of act like they're casually walking around with winter coats in August, which is hard to do. They walked away from everything to go to freedom. They had some money, they gave it to people who smuggled them into Czechoslovakia, and then from Czechoslovakia they made the perilous journey to Austria and freedom. He, as a little baby, and his sister and his mom were sent to America. His dad had to live in a relocation camp for five years to clear his name, and he got papers. He went to Manhattan, opened a print shop. His dad loved America. A lot of people who are first-generation Americans are really patriotic. 
He said, his dad said, I want to live in a country where the north or the south or the east or the west would never invade you. He said, I don't think Mexico or Canada is going to invade the United States. He said, I've lived in a world where everybody at any minute could, could invade you. So he says this happened in his experience. He was an uh, older teenager in his early 20s. And he said in the 1960s, Pete Seeger, now some of you guys know Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger wrote, uh, If I Had a Hammer. Remember that? If you're older, If I Had a Hammer. I loved that song when I was growing up. I have no idea what it means, but I sang it all the time. If I Had a Hammer. He also wrote, uh, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? He was a, you know, like one of the folk singers like Peter, Paul, and Mary on steroids. Uh, he wrote Turn, 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 based upon Rev uh, Ecclesiastes 3. So Pete Seeger wrote this song, ridicule in small town, suburban track homes in America that all looked the same and all were made out of ticky tacky material, close quote, whatever that is. My father heard me playing this. Now that, okay, this is on, on the phonograph. It was a round thing you put on, <laughs> took a needle, okay? So it's, it's, it was wild technology. Uh, on, on a phonograph, and uh, he said, said, what does that song mean? And he, he said, as a young, almost 20-year-old, I explained that Seeger's dislike of cheap, mass-produced homes reflected his dislike of cheap, mass-produced people in America. And then I said to my father, how you live defines who you really are. He, says, he said, I told him, we're becoming mass-produced people. I said, we were in the backyard of our homes, and I'll never forget my father's response. He threw up his shoulders and said, is this what Americans worry about? And then he makes his commentary. The answer was yes. My father never lost his identity. His fear was losing his life. My father loved America because in his dreams, he was safe. He emerged from a Europe where he had seen Nazism and Stalinism with the understanding that knowledge, with the knowledge, understand that life is precious and that the greatest enemy are the men who would deprive you of it, i.e. Stalin and Hitler. For him, the world was simple. Europe was a place that he had seen filled with wolves and destruction and mass murder by people who preyed upon you. But America was filled with people who were not afraid. I read that and I thought, what, what, concerns, what concerns me? What are the fears of my life? Do, do I behold the greatness of a triune God who loves and cares for me? See, right, right after this passage, Jesus says, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear. Don't worry about the future. You know, wow. Doesn't mean you don't work. Doesn't mean you don't plan. He says, but don't, don't worry. He says, because your Abba Father knows what you need before you open your mouth to ask him. That makes me happy. So let me just give you principally four points about um, a, a worldview that floods your body with light. The first is this. We understand that life is significant. In the attendance statement number two, people really do count. People really do count. We believe that life is more than what we eat and drink and that people are not just happenstances of a weird, impersonal, plus time, plus chance, but that people have a glorious dignity because they're made in the image of God. Therefore, every man, woman, boy, and girl of every race 
and every socioeconomic level are worthy of respect in Christian love. And so people have dignity. Let me tell you this. You've got to fight for that. You've got to fight for that. I love being alive in 2015. I, I, I thank God that he saw that we should be birthed now. We should seize the moment. But we live in a culture that by and large gives a nodding acceptance to a biblical world and life view that says life is a gift and one day we die and we go to heaven or we go to judgment. They, they'll nod to that. But, but by and large, the culture around us is, is what I would call a materialistic world and life view that says we believe in the here and now and you, we only believe in what we can see or touch or taste. And beyond that, it's kind of foggy at best. And so here's a couple of examples. So Downton Abbey. Love Downton Abbey. It's just wonderful. I had some friends who were sitting up here first service and I went to, with, I was in a room with them and some other people and they were talking about this great show that they'd fallen in love with. And I said, what is it? And they said, Downton Abbey. And I said, to explain, it's about a British manor and a family and just living day by day. And I said, boy, it sounds boring as I'll get out to me, but I watched it and I got hooked. So some people said, this is season five, you're gonna be disappointed because we don't watch it till the end of the season and we OD on about four days. We just go, go through it all at one time. Love Downton Abbey, love Lord Grantham, love, his, man, his mama is the bomb. And I mean, I just, I just, I like the, the, I like the artistry. I like the dialogue is great. But listen to me. It starts in 1912 with the sinking of the Titanic. It goes into World War I. There was a bloodbath. It goes into the flu epidemic that killed more people than World War I. It goes into the economic downturn. It's very clear historically what it does. They, 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 they bury a daughter, they bury a son-in-law, I think Matthew's dead, I think he's pretty dead, I think he's dead, I'm, they bury Matthew, they, they go, go, the concept of God is not mentioned, it's a great, it's a great show, I love it, don't, I'm not putting it down, I'm just going, surely somebody would say, hey, we're thankful he's in heaven, or hey, somebody would say, there's nothing Conversely, I've seen two movies recently. I'm going, wow. And these movies had the drumbeat of eternity. I thought, this is good. The Good Lie. Get it. It's about the Lost Boys of Sudan. Powerful movie. And the other, I don't recommend, even though it's a powerful movie because it's so emotionally draining, Fury. It's about the end of World War II, a tank and the end of World War II. It's, you, you, you watch it and you feel like you've run a marathon. You're just depleted. But there is a guy in the movie played by Shia LaBeouf who's a believer, and it's a true-to-form, I think, depiction of a guy who's a man of faith who struggles and who's trying to do it. And I go, cool. So you hear the drumbeat of eternity. But by and large, you're going to have a culture that just gives a nodding acquaintance at best. You've got to fight for it. You've got to be with each other. You've got to think out loud together. So, and number three, uh, Death is reality. A couple of quotes from the sermon guide, uh, Humanist Manifesto, 1973, excuse me, says, there, there is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. And then Bertrand Russell, the British atheist, who's always good for a quote in this area because he's so honest, he says, no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feelings can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That's it. So, so, death. 
death, hopelessness, despair. Um, but we, we believe death is not the final word. The second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says this, uh, so we do not lose heart. See, we, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasted away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light the momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we look on not the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen, those are eternal. Now, t- today, I'm going to enjoy the Super Bowl. I'm going to watch the game with my community group and wonderful group of people, and we're, I want to cheer for the Seahawks. And, you know, I hope, I hope they win. It's, it's just going to be fun. But, but, but I was with a group of students the other day, and some of them, I said, how many of you are cheering for the Patriots, the Seahawks? How many of you don't care? And some of them raised their hand and said, you know, to not care about the Super Bowl is un-American. <laughs> it just is. I'm, I'm sorry. You guys need to really get, get clued into this. But everybody watches the Super Bowl in part, even those who don't care about football, because of the commercials. Don't you? Let me just say, every year Budweiser wins because they've got the Clydesdales. I mean, Clydesdales, they're 72 inches tall, weigh 2,200 pounds. They're magnificent animals from Scotland. They're just magnificent, and they always throw in a puppy. So you got these beautiful horses and puppies. You're going to win hands down. They, the rest of the guys should just say, we're not going to have advertisements. We're going to forfeit to Clydesdale and save millions of dollars because they win. And I've seen, seen this year's commercial. It is a wonderful commercial. Anyway, so that's, that's a drumbeat of eternity, God's creation. But that's beside the point. And I thought about some of the past Super Bowls. I'm older. I remember all the Super Bowls where I was alive during them. And Super Bowl three, I was thinking about earlier this week, Super Bowl three was a historic Goliath versus David Super Bowl. Goliath was the Baltimore Colts, led by Johnny Unitas and, and uh, Bubba Smith. And, and the, 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 the David was the New York Jets. Joe Namath, Don Maynard, Webb Eubank was the coach. And the Colts were just supposed to kill the Jets, and the Jets won. Huge, huge. One of the greatest upsets in American uh, sports history. So I, th- I thought if, if they, sometimes in these games, they recognized the athletes off championship teams or that played in previous Super Bowls. And I thought, you know, if you're sitting there in the stadium and it's 30 minutes before the game and they recognize the New York Jets and the then Baltimore Colts and they, these guys come out, you know, whenever that happens, and I've been at games where that happens, the first thing I do is I cringe. These guys were 70, 68, 70, 75. Their bodies have been beat by football. The six foot five guy that used to eat Pontiacs for breakfast is now 6'2", and he's hobbling. And I always cringe because, let me tell you something, getting old is hard. It's hard. It's painful. So, so if, if you don't have a Christian world in life, you, you cringe and you just stay there. You do. You go, oh, gosh. Oh, I'm going to be that way one day. Bad knees, bad hips, can't walk. But if you're a believer, you, you do cringe, but you don't stay there. You say, you know, thanks be to God. Resurrection bodies. New day's coming. 
Death is not the final word. Knee replacements are not the final word. Revelation 1 says we're going to a place where we have new bodies and every tear is wiped away and everything is swallowed up by the magnificence of Jesus Christ. So yeah, we cringe. You go to an old folks home, you better cringe. It's hard. But then you say, thanks be to God, that's not the final word. Disease isn't the final word. And so, so we, we have hope. The fourth point, very quickly, very quickly, is this. Because there's a great God who's invaded history and lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, we know that we're part of a grand narrative called the history of God's people. And history is going someplace. History is not going to end in a whimper. History is going to end with the trumpet sound of the Lord. We were singing about that in this room this morning. We, we sang this, this great hymn by Wesley. Rejoice in glorious hope, our Lord and judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again. I say rejoice. So, so we're not part of the impersonal plus time plus chance, some cacophonic nothingness, some bizarre human mistake. We're part of a glorious unfolding drama. You're part of the story. What you do counts. Your energy, your passion, your giftness, you are a steward. The good news is you're gifted. The better news are you're responsible. What are you setting your affection on? The, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. It's so clear. If, if, if your eye is sound, your body is flooded with light. If your eye is bad, your body is flooded with darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, man, it's bad darkness. There's a guy named Samuel Beckett. He was an Irishman, playwright, well-known, died in 1989. He was one of the forerunners of something called the Theater of the Absurd. The Theater of the Absurd were some very gifted artists who said, life is a cosmic joke. Man has no meaning. Life has no meaning. Therefore, life is an empty gas. Obviously, they didn't work for Hallmark cards, okay? Samuel Beckett was very gifted, and in 1969, 20 years before he died, he released a play, Google it, it's called Breathe. It lasted a minute and 20 seconds, and it was well-received, and he received awards, and probably made a lot of money, I, I just, it's amazing. I believe in artistic license, because I'm not an artist, and I gotta give you guys grace. But here, here's the play, and, and leave me, it's powerful, it's powerful. The play starts this totally dark stage, and then you hear somebody breathing, the rhythm of breath. And the light starts coming up. And you can see a pile of stuff. And the light gets brighter and brighter. And the breath becomes more pronounced. And you see a pile of garbage. Used milk cartons, used clothes, empty wrappers, just, just scattered everywhere. And the light shines on, shines on it brightly for 20 seconds, and then it starts dimming, and the breath becomes less audible, and it ends with no breath and total darkness. Seriously, a minute and 20 seconds. 
And it's powerful because that is his worldview. All you are is a breath. And you're a user of commodities, and then you die. There's no hope in that. That's why it's called the theater of the absurd. Do you see the goodness of the gospel? Do you see part of an unfolding drama of life that you have dignity? Your friends have dignity. The people that, that may drive you crazy have dignity because they're made in the image of God. And they're worthy of respect and Christian love. And then because, because you have dignity and because God is and because God has made you and because if you're a believer, God has called you to himself, you are a steward. As a steward, we stand up and say, if the eye is good, the body's filled with the light, but if the eye is bad, it's bad. How have you seen life? It starts with the step of faith. It starts when you say, I can't do it on my own. I, I'm separated from God by sin. I see that. And Christ did for me what I could never do for myself. So I'm going to turn from willful ways and I'm going to follow Christ. I believe Jesus died on the cross as my sin bearer. First step. And then the journey begins. And it's gradual. And it's day by day. God give us the grace to walk in dignity and hope and joy and celebration. Okay, let's pray. Lord, for this day and for the tender mercies of Christ, we are thankful. Thank you that we are people of significance and dignity uh, because we're made in your image. And thank you that, uh, Lord, because of the cross of Christ, and, and we can have a way of looking at life that's new and glorious and filled with meaning. And, and Lord, we say to one another, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body is flooded with light. Or may we have good worldviews, Christ-centered worldviews, biblically saturated worldviews to help us see life for all this glory. Uh, so work in us, Lord. Oh, change us. Change us, I pray. And use us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thank you. Have a good day.